Okay, the reading is from um, Genesis chapter 11, starting at verse 27. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died on Haran. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was seventy-five years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. About 20 years ago, I know I don't look that old. About 20 years ago, I listened to a series of uh, tape ministry. Remember those tapes? Tape ministry on uh, the life of Abraham. So this uh, series that we're beginning that Dave and I will share as is normal has been 20 years in the brewing, 20 years in the making. And I hope it's as helpful to you and to us as a church family as it was uh, to me, to Joe and I, 20 years ago when we were thinking about uh, Christian ministry and whether we should be engaged in that full time. So Abraham, if you were to jump in your car and journey around Epsom, if you're going to go up into town, you would pass mosques, you would pass synagogues, you would pass a host of churches of different shapes and sizes. And uh, in each of those three world religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Abraham, Abraham, that we're going to look at over the next seven weeks, is a really, really key person of those three world religions. Look at chapter 11 with me in verse 29. First time we meet uh, Abraham, his name is Abram. Um, don't get confused by that. Abram will shortly become Abraham. God changes his name, which is always very, very significant in the Bible. Abram means daddy. Uh, Abraham means big daddy. But it just, uh, it's not the, uh, the wrestler with Lycra of the 1980s. This is uh, someone different. But Abraham, his name has changed to Abraham, but he's not a wrestler. He's a man of courage, we're going to see today. He's a man of courage who, when God speaks to him, he responds with unconditional obedience. We'll see in weeks to come that uh, he's not the finished article by any means. He makes an absolute host of mistakes, but he has confidence in God to stand on his own beliefs, even if that means he stands by himself. 
And that's remarkable quality that we're going to see this morning. We need to engage with this, this word that American friends in particular love using, the call. American friends love using the word, the call. Have you received God's call? It's a thoroughly biblical concept. And it simply means, have you heard God's call on your life? And have you been obedient to the call of God on your life? God's call to Abraham was unique. It was specific. It was time bonded. And yet there's a principle that we can uh, delineate from the life of Abraham to each of our lives, that every Christian is a called person. To be a Christian means you have to have heard God's call on your life. You're not a Christian unless you've heard and embraced the call of God on your life. And God's call has a power to it, an innate power to it. It has huge scope. It encompasses all of your life. And after looking at those two things about power and the scope, we're going to see how to receive it if you're not a Christian this morning. Let's think about the power of the call. Let's think about the scope of the call. And let's think about how you receive God's call. Firstly, the power. How, uh, how and what do we mean by the power of the call of God? What, what do we mean by that? That's our first point. Do you remember that BBC series that is well worth picking up on iPlayer if you didn't engage with it when it first came out? Who do you think you are? And it's a, it's a great and interesting program that looks into the backstory, the backstory and the lives of famous people. There's some shady people in the past of Kate Winslet and, and, and comedic people and sporting people, uh, actresses and actors. And you go and jump into their backstory and you see from whence they came. Lots of surprises. Very, very interesting. But all to say, family trees are very, very important. We have a somewhat of a family tree that we need to engage with in chapters 1 to 11 of the book of Genesis. In chapters 1 and 2, God spoke a world into being. It's a good world, and that's the pinnacle of the, the book of Genesis, you could say. God's good word, creating God's good world, in which men and women enjoy God's presence and know their purpose. Sadly, that high point doesn't last long. And as soon as you get to Genesis chapter 3 and in through to Genesis chapter 11, there is a vicious spiral that because men and women, boys and girls, don't want to live under God's loving rule, they turn their back on God and God in his appropriate justice sends them out of the Garden of Eden and there's a downward spiral. There's the first murder very soon. There's more and more violence. There's more and more evil. And there's a horrible sentence where it's God says, I wish I'd never created the world. It's in such a mess. I wish I could reboot and start over. And there's one ray of hope in all this darkness. And that's the family line of Seth. Genesis chapter four. We, we meet Seth's family line right at the end of Genesis four. We read the sentence that, that Seth's family line were the family line who worshipped God. When everyone else didn't, there was one true family line left. And that was the family of Seth. Fast forward from chapter 4 through to chapter 11 and you see the the cash value of that family line. You trace it through. And this is what has happened. Genesis 11 verse 27. This is the account of Terah from the family line of Seth. And you meet Terah and you meet Abraham, his son. And amidst all that darkness with the one ray of light, Genesis chapter 4, the family line of Seth, by the time you get to Genesis 11, and the story of Abraham begins, it looks as if God's plan for a good world once again are in tatters. For a couple of reasons that we, we see in verses 27 uh, through to verse 32. 
first of all, verse 27, this is the account of Terah. Terah, that word, that name means moon. It means that uh, he was a moon worshipper. If you fast forward to the end of the book of uh, Joshua, Joshua 24, um, you see there that Joshua gathers all of the leaders of God's people together and he does a kind of a potted history. This is what God has done in our history. And the first thing he says is, do you remember how God called Terah and Abram, who was a moon worshipper, who worshipped other gods from Ur of the Chaldees? And so what's happening here is God, by his sufficient grace and his mercy, is speaking hope and light and life into a family of moon worshippers who have nothing to do with him. They've gone over to idol worship. They've rejected chapter four of the book of Genesis, the true worship of God, and they've replaced their worship of God with worship of the moon. And Abraham is born into this family. that's not all we meet Abraham's wife spiritually God's plan looked like they're in tatters the the candle was flickering out and look at chapter 11 verse 30 we meet Sarah Abraham's wife what's happening to her she's barren and just in good old-fashioned Hebrew redundancy she has no child we got the point so she's barren barren she's childless childless in other words spiritually it looks as if God's plans and purposes to redeem the world are in tatters Physically, the family line that began with Seth, that was the hope for the world, looks like it's going to end because she's barren, barren. She's child, childless. We're out of time and we're short on hope. And here on this map, you can see the journey. The journey that uh, was begun. Here we have in modern day Turkey, we've got Ur of the Chaldeans. We're going uh, northwest up to Haran. But rather than journeying to Canaan, a more direct route from uh, east to west towards the territory of Egypt, or just before, Terah, Abraham's dad, decided that was too far to go, and so he settled down. So here we have, before we even get to the famous sentences of uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, we have the backdrop. We have the family. Who do you think you are, Abraham? This is who you are. You've been born into a family where your father your father led you in moon worship, rejected God, led you in moon worship. And, and Sarah, your, your wife, well, she's barren. So you're without hope and time's running out. There's a principle here, friends. Chris spoke so helpfully. The Christian faith is never inherited. Christian faith can be passed down in terms of teaching and modeling and discipleship, but it's not something you can give to your child or give to your loved one or give to your husband or to your spouse or to your wife. There are 20 wonderful kids at the other end of the school building this morning, about 20. They go to uh, great schools. More importantly, they're brought up in great families that love them and who pray for them. They're supported by uh, super Emmanuel kids leaders and creche leaders as well. People that plan for them, that deliver a great curriculum to them about the Bible, about the grace of God. They've got uh, a church family who prays for them. They've got a church family with all our weaknesses who seek to model Christ to them. And yet, if they do not respond to the call of God in their lives, they will remain respectable looking little idol factories. That's all they will be. Respectable on the outside, but in their hearts, unless they respond to the call of God that will disrupt their life in their youth, we pray, rather than in their adult years. That's too long for them, we trust. 
that God would work in their lives once they're little, once they're young, to save them from all that pain that uh, disobedience can cause. Unless God's call comes into their life, they will remain respectable looking with a few GCSEs and maybe A-levels or not, idolaters. Everybody needs to respond to the call of God. If that does not happen, we take uh, the word good, something good from God's world, and we take one letter from that word good, and we make it into a God thing. All of us did that before God's call broke into our lives. And so we need God to break into every heart and every mind in the youth, in the senior moments, and everywhere in between. Because unless you respond to the call of God, you will not know his voice. And it's a gracious call and it's a powerful call. It's a powerful call that can break into any heart and mind. And it's a gracious call because none of us deserve for God to address us. God's power has the power to transform every human heart. And that's the first principle that we learn from the book of Genesis. Genesis 11 into 12. Here's Abraham. His dad was a moon worshipper. He was on the, uh, the fast track to moon worship himself until God spoke and rescued him. No hope, time's running out, and yet God, by his grace, spoke a word of power into his life. And that's the word we read in chapters 12, 1 to 3. It's the power of the call. But then there's the scope of the call. What does it mean if God's word is powerful and it's gracious and we all need to receive it and hear it and respond to it and be disrupted by it? What's the scope of the call? Look at uh, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3 with me, these famous sentences. Verse 1 to 3, leave your country, your people, your father's household and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The scope of this powerful, gracious call from God. Well, first of all, it's personal. Verse 1 is so drastic. Look at verse 1. The NIV, the New International Version, says, leave your country. ESV, English Standard Version, has go from your country. The good old-fashioned King James, get thee out, it says. Now, there's something to the King James, lest you laugh. King James, I think, has got it. It's right on the money. Get thee out, and I'll tell you where you're going later on. But look again at verse 31 of chapter 11, would you? There's that small word, but. Remember the map? You're on this journey. That terror. Uh, Abraham's dad says, we're going out. We're going to leave Haran. Excuse me, we're going to leave Ur. We're heading for Canaan. But it was so comfortable in, in Haran that he, that he settled down. Verse 31. Together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan, but they stopped at Haran. Why? You presume they didn't want to go any farther. You presume it was a pleasant place. You presume that it was a comfortable place. You presume that there was just enough space for them and everything they wanted was there. And so they changed their plans. They decided it was better for them to not journey on to Canaan. So they stopped in Haran. And then verse 1, Abraham, the next generation, God comes and speaks to him and says, I want you to go further. I want you to obey me completely. There's no limits to what I will ask of you and there's no boundaries to what I can do through you. Will you obey me, Abraham? 
I want you to obey me with all of your person, with all of your resources, with all of your will, commit to me all of your future. No limits, no conditions. I want you to get up and get out and go and I'll tell you later where we're going. This is what it means to hear the call of God on your life. It means to say, God, I will take you at your word and there's no limits to my obedience. You can say I'm scared, you can say I'm anxious, you can say I'm fearful. But to receive the personal call of God means you get up and you go. No matter where God calls you. It's a personal call to journey further. It might be challenging to your will, it certainly will be. It might be beyond your personal resources. But the call of God comes to every Christian and says, will you trust me? Am I trustworthy? Will you go? Get out. And Abraham said, I will. It's not just to your ears, though, secondly, it's to your heart. It's a personal call, it's a powerful call, it's a gracious call. But it's not just to your ears, God's call is to your heart. Notice how the first sentence of chapter 12 is left kind of open-ended. Verse 1, get out of your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. Now notice, um, God does not uh, just ping Abraham's phone with a Google map and a little pin mark that says this is where we're going. He doesn't send a kind of camel, like a carrier pigeon, but on a camel. He didn't say, I want you to just go up to, to Haran and take a left for 250 miles and then take a right and, and settle down in Egypt. It's this completely open-ended verse one. Get out, I'm not going to tell you where you are going. And here's the rub for me and maybe for you. Very often I have qualified obedience. God, I'll get out for you. I will follow you if. And then fill in the blank. God, I will follow you when. God, I will follow you only. God, I will... F- Do you get the point? I want to put the boundaries on my obedience. It's qualified obedience because actually I don't want to lose control of my heart and life. If you show me exactly where we're going, then I'll go. If you tell me exactly how much I'm going to have to give in terms of my resources and life, if you show me what I can keep rather than what I have to give, then I'll go. If that's you, you're not answering the call. The principle from this distinct call that God spoke to Abraham is to obey God no matter what the cost. It will be costly, it will be difficult, it will be demanding but it's the best place to be. We all want to stay in control of our lives. We don't want to surrender our will. But God's call is not just for your ears, not just verbal communication, it's for your heart. It's for your your CPU, your volitional centre. If you're really saying, I'm happy to go if, it makes sense to me. I'm happy to go if I just have an opportunity to read the small print, to, to weigh up the checks and balances, then you are not obeying God's call. Think about Abraham's life if you know it. Give you a kind of a spoiler alert. Sorry about that. This is the first time that God says to Abraham, get out and I'll tell you later. But then just a few chapters later, he says, uh, 
You're going to have a son. How? I'll tell you later. And then right at the end of his life, in Genesis chapter 22, the famous part, Abraham speaks, or God speaks again to Abraham and says, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and I want you to offer him to me as a sacrificial offering. How? I'll tell you later. All throughout his life, God speaks to Abraham, and he speaks to you and I, and he says, I need you to trust me. Will you trust me? Will you obey me? No matter what the cost, get out, and I'll tell you later. 20 years ago, when I was listening to a series of messages on this passage from where the ideas have come from, and lots of the content, um, Tim Keller was making a reference to a, a literary critic who he read uh, a series of articles by about the difference there are in, in different stories in English culture. He says there's a difference between an adventure story and a quest. An adventure story and a quest. In an adventure story like Treasure Island, Around the World in 80 Days, Moby Dick, that sort of story, uh, something comes to someone's life and you go out and you do something, you defeat a wild beast, you do you, you, you defeat a big whale out in the sea or something like that, and then you come back and you pick up the strings of your life and on you go. That's an adventure story. It's, it's, you go out, you complete a task, and you come back, and then it's as if it never happened. That's an adventure story. that are great, but then there are quests. A quest is very different. In an adventure story, you choose if you engage in it, but a quest is something that chooses you. A quest is something like the Odyssey or Narnia, or Lord of the Rings. There's a great foe that needs to be defeated, and you are the only person that can do it. But you might not come back. The quest chooses you, you choose the adventure. And Keller said something very helpful that I've never forgotten. Simply this, Christianity is not an adventure story. Christianity is a quest. God comes, God chooses you, and he sends you out, and you'll never come back the same person. When you follow him, when you're obedient to him, you'll change radically, not by the journey, but by the God who sent you on the journey. Christianity is a quest when God says, get out and I will change you radically and deeply and permanently. I'll have great challenges before you. Don't ask, will my agenda fit into your agenda? I'm going to give you a whole new agenda. I'm going to give you a whole new uh, perspective. Don't ask, will Christianity keep me safe in the afterlife? Will it enrich my life? I, I need a bit of spiritual insurance. No, Christianity will give you a whole new life, a whole new perspective, and a whole new purpose. Unless you say, Lord, I will get out, and I will follow you, and I will trust you no matter what, you are not asking answering the call of God in your life. It's that stark. Because the call is not just for your ears, it's for your heart. It's for your volitional centre. It's for motives and passions and priorities. That's what I think. want to think about thirdly. You get these new priorities. When you follow God, it's not just personal, it's not just for your heart. It's new priorities, new goals in your life. Look at uh, the first few verses again of chapter 12. I will bless you, later on, that you may be a blessing. Because through you, all of the families and peoples of the earth will be blessed. When you become a Christian, it changes how you make decisions. Your comfort is no longer your greatest priority, or it shouldn't be. 
chatting to someone recently, a local pastor in Surrey, and we were saying, we wonder if Surrey now, Greater London, Kent could be included as well, is one of the most hardest places to reach because of affluenza. We can't see our spiritual need than there is in the whole UK. We're so confident in our own standing and resources. By God's grace, COVID has kind of agitated us. So we've seen some of our weakness, but those lessons are being all too quickly forgotten. But when you follow Christ, you no longer say, what's most comfortable for me? You say, what's best for the kingdom? You don't say, what's most uh, convenient for me? You say, what's best for Christ to be made much of and known in my land and through my life? You don't say, will this job increase my status and influence? You say, what's the cost of me taking this post? Will I be able to serve Christ still? Because you have new priorities when you hear God's call. Where can I most be a blessing. See what God says to Abraham? If you seek to be blessed, you'll be empty. But if you seek to bless others, I will bless you. God only blesses us so that we might uh, get out. To the degree that we get out, God will come to us. To the degree that we're prepared to leave our own resources aside and apart and behind us, God will come to us and he will provide for us. To get out, that means leave the comfort Leave your security, leave what's uh, known to you, leave the safety zone, leave what's manageable and comfortable to you and get out and serve him no matter what the cost. Whether that's uh, knocking on your neighbour's door because you want to speak to them about Christmas, you want to invite them to something. You're crossing the comfort zone, crossing the barrier, whether it means changing your career, changing your job so that you can make much of Jesus in a different part of life so you can serve him in a new venture or a new part of life. And this principle here is saying God's call comes and it's personal and it's powerful, it's gracious, it's for our heart, not just for our ears, and it gives us new priorities as well. I will bless you so that you might be a blessing. I don't bless you for your sake. I bless you, Abraham, so that you might bless other people. I appear to you, I come into your life so that you might be a blessing to other people. It's the power of the call. It's the uh, scope of the call. It's all of life. But then how do you receive it, finally? How do you receive God's call? How in the world do you bring this much power into your life, so to speak? Here's the answer. Abraham had all these promises to be a a great nation, to receive a land, for a new name to be given to him, to be protected and secure and to be blessed. And yet all of these great promises, there are are five really, underneath them there is one that they all sit upon, they're all founded upon. He was going to be a great nation, but to uh, be a great nation first he needed an offspring, he needed a son. He uh, was going to have a great name to bless all the people of the earth, but first of all he had to have a son. And so underneath all these promises of name, nation, protection, blessing, land, is this issue of sonship and the fact that his wife, Sarah, is barren and she's without child, lest we forget. Everything came to that. He was old, as was Abraham. He's knocking on a bit. He's 75. Let's not think about that if we're teenagers. That meant the son was going to have to be a miraculous act of grace, something extraordinary, something supernatural was going to have to happen if God was going to keep his word. And here's, I think, what God is saying behind the text of Genesis 12. And I say this very cautiously. 
Are you prepared to live with faith in the Son? Are you prepared to take me at my word? Because all through your life, Abraham, it's going to be ups and there's going to be a lot of downs. Are you prepared to live with faith in the Son? Because the Son is the basis of every other promise. And what God said to Abraham, he says exactly the same to us. Am I, are you, prepared to live with faith in the Son? Because in time, Isaac was born. Isaac, the son of promise. But Isaac was only a shadow and a pointer to the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the one who left his father's house, left his security, left all he had, and he lived a nomadic life on earth with nowhere to lay his head like a fox. And he did that for us. How do you live this, this life under God's kingdom rule? How do you live this life of risk when, if you're like me, you want to keep it safe? It's very simple, but very hard. Here's how you do it. If you see Jesus answered the original call, the ultimate call, to leave beside him the heavenly security that he had, so that you and I could have ultimate security of knowing that we're adopted into a family, that we're loved, that we're approved of, that we have all the resources that we've ever dreamt of in Christ, then we can put aside everything that we think of as a security in this world and we can surrender our will to King Jesus. You'll be able to handle any opposition that you face if you have faith in the Son. So let me ask you as we come around the table, have you received the call of God on your life? Are you a Christian? If you are, you'll know some of the power of it. You'll know some of the personal scope that it's changed your whole life and heart. And you'll be sure increasingly to live for its priorities.